This is episode 58 of the Science Communication Accelerator podcast, and today it is about how to create climate science content and writing a bestseller on the site, together with Professor Kimberly Nicholas. Let's go. Reach, as I said, is not the same as impact. It's not about the number of people you reach. It could be just reaching the one right person to make a change that actually makes an impact and benefits the world. So it's not only a numbers game. I think the social media is visible. And we like to compare ourselves to others, even though comparison is the thief of joy and it's not good for us and it's not helpful. But of course, it's something I am aware of as well. So I think people care about social media numbers because it's visible. You can see how other people are doing. Folks, when recording this episode, we had a little bit of technical problems. So we had to switch from the software that I normally use to Zoom and Zoom did not really pick up my microphone really well. So I'm sorry for that, but my track is not so great. But since Kimberly is mostly talking uh, and her microphone worked well, then uh, we I thought it's still valuable to put this episode out. But apologies for my sound of my microphone in this episode. Well, with no further ado, let's go. So welcome to episode 58 of the Science Communication Accelerator podcast. Today, it's the name of this episode is We Can Fix It. And I'm very happy to have someone here who's been on my bucket list a bit for quite some time for this podcast, because I had her on another podcast two years ago. And then I asked her, do you mind coming to this podcast as well? And she said, yes, but it took two years, but now she's here. She's an American scientist. She works at Lund University. She has a PhD from Stanford. She's published more than 60 articles on climate and sustainability in leading peer-reviewed journals. She writes, apart from that, also in publications like The Guardian, Scientific American, and also things like The Decanter, which is probably your connection to the wine world. And then she wrote a book on the site, which is, and we're going to talk about it, it's called Under the Sky We Make, how to, and she gives actionable advice on a newsletter, which runs on Substacks and which is called, actually, We Fix It, as this episode. So welcome to the podcast, dear Kimberly, Professor Kimberly Nicholas. How are you doing? Wow, thank you so much, Julius. I feel terrible. Has it been two years that I've been putting you off? Well, I'm glad no, that we... it's not your fault. I was just like, would you mind? And then, you know, it's like, I also didn't really follow up. But now you're here. That's amazing. Okay. <laughs> so, and work. the idea of this podcast is to people in the audience is to really show researchers, like to really give a picture or give a face to researchers that are actually doing a lot of science communication. And Kim has been active as a scientist, obviously, but also she writes and she wrote a book and she does a newsletter and she has 15K followers on Twitter. And I think that's quite a lot of things that maybe many of you who are listening to this episode might be aspired to. So I just want to like give you the opportunity to learn about how Kim is actually handling all of that, despite being a professor or like maybe just because she's working in research. So Kim, when you hear all these things that I just said in the beginning to introduce yourself, that's obviously just the hard facts. So why is it that you are into science communication, why you talk about your stuff that you do research on, and what was the way that got you there? Yes. So the reason I do science communication is so that my work and the work of colleagues can reach the people who can benefit from it. And ultimately, to change hearts and minds when people encounter new information, so that they can help lead about changes in policy and practice to make the world a better place. So for me, that's what science communication is about. Christian Nielsen and I wrote a piece about this last year, about taking an idea to impact. And we use Mark Reed's definition of impact, the benefit that researchers can have in the world. So I try to think about it in terms of communication is essential to 
increase your reach so that the finding, the knowledge reaches people who can benefit from it. But just someone encountering information for me is not the goal. You could say, oh, this many people, you know, altmetrics, that's what altmetrics measures, right? It says this many people tweeted about a study or something. And that's great. But the point is ultimately that those people take that knowledge and something in the world changes because of it, ultimately in a way that benefits people. Mm. When did you start that? Or when did you realize that that's something where you want to contribute to? I think I've always been interested in the change that science can make in the world. And I've always been navigating the role of scientist and someone who is trying to make a change. I don't see it as my job to just report facts. That's a very important job of scientists. But I think as a climate scientist and in the climate crisis of 2023, it's not a lack of facts that is a gap that needs to be filled. Of course, we still need research to carry on. But to me, the solutions and helping to bring about fast and fair solutions to the climate crisis is where I most want to contribute. I worked at a nonprofit after finishing my bachelor's degree for a couple of years before I went back to grad school. And I was lucky to be encouraged by mentors who were also interested in science that can make an impact and help, in my case, being focused on mitigating the climate crisis. So I was supported by mentors in grad school who gave me opportunities to do that and work on projects that helped do that and could be relevant to real decisions that were happening in the real world with my research. Kim, we're going to jump into how you use social media and how you leverage it in a second. But since you're an American and you work in Europe, in Sweden, can you give us an idea of what the difference is, what you feel like how science communication is valued or not valued, and how maybe your colleagues in the United States use it differently than maybe colleagues here in Europe? Hmm. I'm struggling to think of a good way to answer that. I mean, I guess I was really lucky to benefit from a lot of science communication training and education first in the US and then in Europe, following my career trajectory, I guess. So I've had the chance to collaborate with a lot of really, really smart professional science communicators who, for example, helped us in the first paper that I worked on, which came out in 2004. We had a communications trainer for that paper who helped us develop a message triangle, which was the three main takeaways that we wanted people to understand from our scientific paper. And that was a half-day workshop where, you know, a bunch of PhDs and myself as an early PhD student sat around a table and the trainer said things like, okay, so what is it you want people to take away? And we had these really, really created, very detail-oriented, quite hard to understand what we thought were takeaways. And she helped us really boil it down to three points that I actually still remember 20 years later. What were they? So this was a study on the impacts of climate change on California. And I contributed the piece on the impacts on the wine industry, which turned into the topic of my PhD. Others looked at health and water resources and other things that people care about in California. And one takeaway was there's a big difference between continued high emissions and low emissions, that life in California will be much better the faster we reduce climate pollution and our choices really matter. Those were kind of the three takeaways. And we started with much more, you know, percentages and uncertainties and error bars. And it was a lot harder to get to the heart of it. And of course, we had evidence to back those points up, but it made us much more effective communicators in talking about the study. And that study actually was cited in the Global Warming Solutions Act of California. So that study helped to provide scientific evidence to support policies to reduce climate pollution. And that felt really exciting. I mean, that took a lot of work by a lot of people who helped coordinate that paper and knew that there was a policy window and kind of put all the right pieces in place. 
So that was a really neat process to be a part of. And I think that made me really interested in trying to do work at the intersection of scientific curiosity that can actually help make better decisions and mitigate the climate crisis. That was like a really good mix of like there was someone who supported you people and then you had a re like a meaningful study and then there was this policy window. Super cool. Yeah, just lucky, but maybe just good work. In the beginning, Kimberly, I kind of told the audience a little bit like of all the things that you were doing. But if you would phrase that, what are the things that you are doing and what are the things that you put like your priorities into? Like what is important for you? Is it the newsletter? Is it the social media stuff? Is it stuff on LinkedIn? Is it writing books? Where are you and what are you doing? What are you prioritizing when it comes to science communication? This is an evolving area for me and something I've been thinking about a lot. So, I mean, just for context for listeners right now, at the moment, it's August 2023. So obviously there have been my main social media platform for the last decade or more has been Twitter. And of course, in the last year, Twitter has undergone major changes that have made it, in my experience, much less fun and useful. So in the fall of last year, when the takeover of Twitter happened and these changes started getting implemented, I kind of took a step back and said, okay, how does this exchange work? And I've gotten a lot of benefit from Twitter, made a lot of friends, had a lot of, learned a lot, made great connections. So I've definitely benefited from it and I've enjoyed being there. But it no longer felt like it was such a great deal for me that, wait a minute, I'm sort of providing free content to enrich advertisers and billionaires. This doesn't feel that great. You even have to pay money if you want to have the blue check mark to get a bit more reach. Oh, right. Yeah. So I haven't done that. So basically, I've been way less active on Twitter in the last year. And I also had the thought, I did a little back of the envelope calculation and I realized, okay, I've written enough tweets at that point that it could have been nine books instead in terms of words. And I thought, gosh, I would really rather have, you know, on my tombstone, author of nine books rather than author of 20,000 tweets. <laughs> yeah, I see 22,600 tweets, more or less. That's substantial. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot. And I'm certainly not saying that you could just staple together my tweets and have like a wonderful book if that's not the case. And of course, social media serves a different purpose than a book and both are valuable. But I guess long way of saying I'm being more thoughtful about where I spend my time and spending less time online in general, trying to spend more time in the real world, which I'm appreciating and enjoying and trying to spend more time writing more lasting stuff, hopefully, and being less reactive, which is kind of the nature of Twitter and trying to focus on the messages and the ideas that I want to explore myself. So that certainly was in my book, Under the Sky We Make. And I have that freedom as well in my Substack, which I haven't been putting out as regularly as I want to. And so I'm kind of trying to figure out the right balance for all of this. But I would say that a new book that I'm starting to draft that does not yet really exist, but ideas are bubbling around and my sub-stack are where I feel I should be putting the majority of my time in science communication. Mm. Yeah, you, you just said that Twitter, for example, is more like you being reactive and you're being putting out something that is gone in a couple of hours. Would you say that newsletters, like newsletters also like being sent out and then eventually they evaporate? It's not like a book, but you feel that newsletters are more... How are newsletters different for you as a writer, but also maybe as a receiver than, for example, platforms like Twitter? Why is it maybe more valuable to write on newsletters and spend time with newsletters? So this is something I learned only pretty recently when I was preparing for my book, my first book to come out, which was basically with some coaching from the publicist and staff at my publisher. I realized and dug into it a bit more and realized that, okay, Email actually has like a 50 times higher engagement than a tweet. 
So that basically means you can have 50 times fewer newsletter subscribers for the same reach. (laughs) And if reach, as I said, is not the same as impact, it's not about the number of people you reach. It could be just reaching the one right person to make a change that actually makes an impact and benefits the world. So it's not only a numbers game. I think the social media is visible and we like to compare ourselves to others, even though comparison is the thief of joy and it's not good for us and it's not helpful. But of course, it's something I am aware of as well. So I think people care about social media numbers because it's visible. You can see how other people are doing. And newsletter subscribers are not as visible. So it's a little bit more mysterious. Substack has started to kind of give you hints or... If you subscribe to someone, it'll say like has thousands of subscribers or has over 10,000 subscribers. They kind of give you a, a range if you're looking at other people's newsletters. So I guess the point is, I think that depth is maybe more my strength than breadth in terms of reach. And I'm trying to cultivate connections and readers and communication that will actually impact people in a longer term way, maybe. So it's not just about blasting a message to a larger group, but maybe a more thoughtful message to a smaller group. Mm -hmm. I would maybe not add, but like commenting that or what I've read or heard is that if there's a change in the algorithm of the network where you're putting out a lot of content, it might be that you don't even reach them as much anymore. And if you have a newsletter, you have email addresses, isn't it? As long as they don't change the email addresses, you can always kind of reach them and get into their inboxes and hope like there's a bigger chance that they actually open these newsletters. I've got two questions to this point, and then you can decide which one you want to answer first. The first one is Substack is just one of the ways how you can actually host newsletters. And I feel newsletters are becoming, again, more important, which is kind of interesting because actually everything started with newsletters before we actually had social media platforms. But so what are other maybe platforms that you thought about apart from Substack or is Substack just the natural thing to go to? And the second one is you wrote this book and maybe a lot of people here listening are also thinking about writing books or are writing books. How did your marketing strategy for the book look like? Are there some things that you would like to share that worked well, or maybe that didn't work so well? I don't have a good answer for the first question. I am not an expert on the different platforms. So I think there could be very good other platforms that I haven't looked into. There definitely is a sort of some cost effect where it's like, oh, I can't imagine moving now because it probably would be a hassle. So I'm not even looking into other options, but there could well be other ones. I personally have been happy with Substack. I found it really easy to use and get started. I do think it's a big benefit to own the email addresses myself as for the reason you mentioned that I sort of realized how dependent I was on Twitter of, wait, how am I going to reach this audience of people that I've spent decade plus cultivating if Twitter falls apart teams, which it still very well may do. The probability of that happening is not zero, isn't it? It's like... (laughs) Exactly. I mean, anything can fail. But as you say, email addresses are much more permanent than a platform dependent social media handle. That feels a bit more secure. And of course, Substack has the option and other newsletter platforms have the option to monetize. I haven't done that yet. So my newsletter is free, but it's something I've considered. So that option is there. Okay. Marketing for my book. I've written a little bit about this. I actually presented a a scientific poster at the Ecological Society of America. So for academic audiences, that might be of interest. I'll send you the link. Yeah, we'll put them in the show notes. And also the piece that you did with Christian on, what was that? Oh, yeah, I think that's impact. Yeah, yeah. That would be also cool to put into the show notes. Yeah. Okay, great. I'll send you those. Poster was comparing academic writing and popular science writing. And so, for example, it was like industry giant, you'll be dependent on and your readers will love to hate. And it's Elsevier for academics and Amazon for authors. And it's like, well, it's very hard to get anything done without either of these two, but you might not love them as an organization, but you will need them. So book marketing, 
I think that was also where my publisher really encouraged me to start a newsletter that they said that was the most effective way of doing it. I mean, it's basically, I think the most helpful book that I read about that, I read about 13 books on book marketing. Really? Okay. I got to look into these as well. A little bit nuts. My husband and I share a Kindle account and I was like staying up late, freaking out about my book launch, like a month before or whatever. And I would download like five new books on Kindle. <laughs> yeah. And he would wake up and be like, what are all these books in our joint Kindle account? Did uh, you sleep or did you just read at night? Yeah, not right. enough. Definitely not enough. I found it, it was really stressful to have a book launch. I mean, of course, it's like an amazing opportunity, but it feels really, really stressful. The one book I would recommend from those many that I probably wouldn't recommend was called Your First 1000 Copies by Tim Graff, I believe is his name. That was just super practical and down to earth. And I liked how, I mean, marketing feels, it doesn't feel good to me as a word and it doesn't feel like who I am or what I do or what I offer. But when I think about it as I have a message that some people and I have knowledge and information and a way of putting things together that some people want to hear and can benefit from, I'm trying to reach those people so they can do that. I mean, basically, my agent says a nonfiction book needs to solve somebody's problem. So if I am think of it as there's a group of people, my target readers, I'm trying to reach and help them solve a problem that they have. That feels good to be trying to get that message out there and to reach those relevant people. I guess the point of that is it's first kind of a mindset. I think that a lot of academics, maybe in particular scientists, struggle with the idea of marketing. Like, oh, the ideas should speak for themselves. And they just do not. Ideas need a spokesperson. And you are the spokesperson for the ideas in your book or the ideals that you want to get out into the world. And the world needs to hear those ideas. So you have to get them to reach the right people. Yeah. And if you get in front of a thousand people, then the likelihood that someone in that target group that you actually want to reach is in there is way more likely as if you just talk to your 10 neighbors in the offices right next to your office, I guess. Yeah. One big thing that develops more and more, I feel, in the world of social media is community building. So like not just like I'm the content creator or I'm the thought leader or whatever, and I'll talk to you, but giving the audience the opportunity to also talk one another. Is that something that, for example, is possible like with newsletters or did you for example explore other avenues such as discord or something or is that something that you i don't want to say struggle with but is that something that you've been thinking about how to create a community yes i don't think it's something i've done successfully yet but it is something i think about and feel i want to aim to do i think maybe the closest ways of doing that is book circles and book discussion so getting people together I would say giving a talk, just a lecture with a Q&A, I don't think that really builds a community, but book circles do build a community and having discussions or people teaching my book in their classroom. Those feel like connection with those readers. And I really, really like doing Zooms or talks with those groups. And that does feel like an opportunity to build more of a community. And I could probably do more with those readers than I have. Because when you just mentioned, I was like, yeah, okay, is Kim going to, I don't know, the next city and then having a book circle there? But then you mentioned, okay, it's digital, obviously. How would you organize that? Like just from your experience or from your approach or from your... It's mostly been people getting in touch with me. If I had more resources, I would probably... I mean, I guess at the beginning when I was launching my book, I was reaching out to a lot of people and trying to get my book on my radar and basically make them aware that this book exists and try to get them interested in reading it. And I mean, when you write a book, you try to get well-known people to, it's called Blurb, write an endorsement for the book. That would be something like, you can't leave the house until you finish this book, Barack Obama. You know, (laughs) you want something that like, that would be ideal. I didn't get that. 
But I did get Bill McKibben to give me an endorsement, which was extremely kind of him, which I really appreciated, and other colleagues and friends and people I admire. So that was really great. You're basically trying to find the niche of where the people who have this problem that I can try to solve, which is basically, you know, how can an ordinary busy person take high impact, meaningful climate action in our hectic everyday lives? You try to find people who can help you with that message and talking to the media is also part of that. I think I could have done more and it would probably in the future, I'd want to do more outreach to libraries, to environmental groups, to climate groups, to campuses, you know, go where your readers already are and sort of try to connect with those folks and organize more of a schedule. But I mean, we all have limited hours in the day and that's something I was doing entirely myself. So I didn't really do that. So now I'm mostly responding to requests and trying to organize. And like, I have a list of questions on my website about the book for discussion questions. If you read it with your book group and say that I'll zoom with your book group, if you do read it and folks have taken me up on that, that's how I've approached it with the community. I have had a couple live chats on Substack and then I'm answering questions live and readers are also there engaging with each other. And I found that really fun. I think it probably still, it wasn't as completely networked and community bottom-up oriented as it could be, but that was a step in that direction. So I would love to spend more time on that in the future. And it always has to be balanced with all the other tasks that we as researchers and academics have. That's a good question that will come in a couple of minutes. So we talked a little bit about social media. We talked a little bit about your book. You also write in magazines. And we had this example that you wrote in Elle, you wrote in The Guardian, Scientific American, Decanter, New Scientist, and so on. How does that fit into there? And what kind of different points do you want to make in these kind of editorials or contributions that you don't do on social media? Or is it the same? Like, tell me, when do you think about doing such a thing? And when do you decide and how does the process look like that you reach out maybe to an editor? How do you pitch that? Walk us through maybe about how these kind of articles come around and how you implement them and how you get them out there. Sure. So I think maybe the most helpful for your audience would be to take an example of a piece in The Guardian that we had last year. So that came about through an article I wrote in The Conversation, which is an academic, the tagline is academic rigor journalistic flair. I believe that's what they say. So the conversation is a news site that is where scientists write the articles in collaboration with and with the input of a professional editor who helps make them readable and engaging. Then they're open copyrights. So they can be reprinted wherever. And in this case, my editor for a study that we published last spring on how to reduce cars in cities. So I pitched that to the conversation by filling out a short web form and they got back to me and were interested and I agreed to write the piece which ended up being much broader than just normally I would write something about, here's this new study, we found these 12 items, and here's the ranking, the end, just our one kind of key finding. But this ended up being a longer piece that was a bit broader about how and why we need to reduce cars in industrialized countries. So I wrote that piece, and then the editor was a former editor of The Guardian and helped me get a piece placed there, which was a shorter version of that. So the conversation can be a good stepping stone. You have to be associated with the university, and your university has to be associated with the conversation to have that option. All right, Kimberly, so two more questions. The first question is, how do you balance all that together? Like, you're an academic, you're writing paper, you collect data, you maybe supervise, and then you do science communication. Doing all these things and being a researcher, blah, blah, same question. How do you balance it? And how much time does science communication take for you in a day-to-day -day environment? Science communication takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of time to do well. And it's not possible to do everything. And I'm trying to prioritize what I do. And it's an ongoing struggle, to be honest. I mean, especially when 
universities, just to be honest, do not reward and care about science communication to the same degree they care about research. And that's a struggle. So I'm trying to find my own balance for that. And we'll see where that balance ends up. I think it's a possibility that universities aren't the right place to do high impact climate communication from. It's also possible that we need to reinvent what it means to be an academic and there need to be different kinds and different roles and ways of being an academic. I mean, I feel like I have a lot of privilege in my current position that I have seniority and ability to decide my own time to a rather large degree, although not an infinite amount. So, you know, we'll see how far I can push this in my current position. But I'm really trying to focus on it. And one thing on science communication, one thing that's been helpful is I do have a grant now that is specifically focused on science communication. So for that grant, I'm supposed to produce climate action guide, a podcast and social media content and zero scientific papers. So it's basically communicating existing science that I've produced and drawing on the work of others and communicating that in hopefully an effective way. So that is helpful to have financial research support to do that. But otherwise, it is tricky. And I think there are many ways for universities to do a better job of supporting science communication. And we need bottom-up demonstration that it adds value and is important to support. And then we need system change to actually value and support that work. Yeah, I'm with you there. Last question, and we'll wrap it up. And that is, imagine someone is, for example, starting out on a PhD or realizing, oh, I want to have more impact, or I want that my science has more impact. I'm not satisfied with just writing papers and collecting the citations. What will be your one, two, three go-to things, maybe, of what you would give them as advice in general? Like, could be platforms, could be formats, could be how much time they use for that. What would be your advice? I think, number one, figure out who you want to reach and why. That is really important, that your message can really benefit some people more than others, even if the whole world needs to know about science. But You can't reach everyone all at once. So I actually think one specific person is good to have in mind. And ideally, someone you actually already know. So not a hypothetical, quote unquote, general public that doesn't exist, but an actual friend with a name and a face. And write or talk about your work as if you were talking to that person. Secondly, I think figure out what kinds of things you do and don't like to do. If it's writing or podcasting or public speaking or social media or anything else, something more creative and dance-based or arts or whatever, like figure out what you actually enjoy and get energy from and focus on that. And I guess third, I think you should have the confidence to do it and to speak for science. I think academia is such a long process and it takes a long time and training and that's for good reasons, but you shouldn't underestimate how much you already know. And For example, I think anyone who's in this field and has read the IPCC Climate Summary Report should feel free to speak on its behalf, to summarize those findings and bring them to a context where they're relevant. There's a lot of science that needs to be communicated. And at the beginning of your career, you won't have published very much. So it's great to talk about your own work, but it's also really important. You know, policy is usually like 20 years behind the science. So there's a lot of science already out there that most people who could benefit from it are not aware of. And you should feel free to speak on the behalf of that science. Yeah, I love that. That's good because youngsters may not feel super comfortable or may not have anything. But as you just mentioned, IPCC is out there and we need to bring it into every corner of this world. Kim, thanks a lot for joining us today. Uh, the audience, I hope this provided value to you. If you want to reach out to Kim, you'll find her LinkedIn 
link, I guess, in the show notes. And if you don't find it, then she will have told me that I should share the Twitter link, but I'm definitely also going to add the Substack link. So Kim, thanks for that. Have a good day. Talk to you soon. All the best for you, your research and your science communication. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. That's it with this episode of the Science Communication Accelerator podcast. The idea of this podcast is to make knowledge available on how to communicate science through social media and podcasts in today's media environment. I'm your host, Julius Wescher, and if you like, you can book me for keynotes, workshops, or consultancy sessions, always when the topic is science communication with social media. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a person that you know that should know about this podcast and doesn't know it just yet. Thanks for that. Take care and hope to have you back in two weeks. 